Hi, everybody, and welcome to a special 80s All Over bonus episode for Patreon subscribers only. We love you guys. Thank you so much for everything you do for us. I am Drew McQueenie, and uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Good morning, Scott. I am anti-Drew McQueenie. I'm the opposite of Drew. Oh, I thought you were just anti-Drew McQueenie, like you took a hard-line stance against all things Drew McQueenie. No, I am. Uh, no, yeah, that's what it sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am the all right. Let, let me say it again. I am the bizarro Drew McQueen. <laughs> all right. Hi, everybody. Thank you. If you're listening to this, it is because you are a subscriber, which means you support our show financially, which means we thank you from the bottom of our heart. Uh, we sincerely appreciate all the support that you give us, uh, whether it's just by uh, listening and and promoting it to other people or uh, dropping a few bucks a month. We sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. And Drew, as you were saying. Well, um, we are going to dig in because we've got a lot of them. And uh, if we don't get to your question today, just realize we'll roll it over to the next one. Um, there were a lot of you guys that uh, responded this week, which is great. Um, we're going to start with a movie God. And um, I got to say, Richard Hernandez, you are a douche. Uh, thank you for contributing. Thank you for being a patron. But holy cow, uh, Movie God, for those of you unfamiliar with it, is a game that I used to play on the old podcast. Uh, it is very simple. You are Movie God. You have the ability to smite one film completely from existence. Anything that happened because of that film is gone. Anything that directly resulted from it, be it trends or an actor's career, you might have put in jeopardy. So choose wisely. Today's edition is inspired by our last episode. And Scott, I'm going to pose the question to you. You are movie god. Do you strike Blade Runner or John Carpenter's The Thing from existence? If I'm movie god, why do I have to do one of the two things he says? Why don't I? Because you are Old Testament movie god. You must smite something. Smite it. Smite. If I have to smite Blade Runner or The Thing, goodbye, Blade Runner. Here's the thing. If you smite Blade Runner, then you lose... 30 years of everybody remaking Blade Runner with their art direction over and over and over. You say that uh, like it's a bad thing. I, it's a, you know, it's a good thing in the cases where people took interesting inspiration. It's a bad thing in the cases where it was very lazy and there was a lot of lazy Blade Runner ripoffs. The thing, oddly, not ripped off that much. And I think I think that is something where, hey, Hollywood, I wish you would rip the thing off more. More giant, crazy mutant body horror, please, at that budget and at that level of production. Yeah, uh, as far as this question goes, I am not really good at, I'm like, extrapolating all the way down the line. Because that means, like, if we don't get Blade Runner, does that mean that, like, Harrison Ford's career takes a different turn? Or, Well, he had already done, by that point, Star Wars and Raiders, so I think he would have been fine. And if anything, Blade Runner was his first big ding in the armor, so maybe... He would have done something that year that would have been like more down the middle. Maybe he would have done something lighter. Who knows? But I think he would have been fine as a movie star. What is, what's yours? You are evil movie god who gets to dis- destroy a film and its lineage. So what? Like, which one do you pick? You know what? I I answered for our for our. Why don't Why don't I ask you, Drew, to pick between Bolero or Tarzan the Ape Man? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we haven't gotten to Bolero yet, have we? There's, there is no lose in that situation. We that is all, win-win, right, yeah, isn't right, it? So what, what's your what's your uh, what's your answer? Uh, I think my answer would be the same. And as much as I would hate losing Blade Runner because I adore it, um, I couldn't lose the thing. 
And I do think the thing is more singular. I think it is a movie that kind of exists in its own weird corner of, of the universe. And there weren't a ton of ripoffs. And there there's not it's not like there's 50 other movies just like it because of it. Whereas Blade Runner, I, I don't know that I would mourn the loss of every single person who ever ripped Blade Runner off. Um, also, you know, there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, the thing is is awesome and uh blade runner also awesome but uh like you said we don't get that many uh rated horror are super gory i mean if you were to see a film that is a a a clinic in practical effects like if you were if you were to say i want to get into practical effects give me five movies i should watch the thing would be movies one and two it is a it is an absolute uh uh clinic uh a, a how to on how uh, latex, it is just the, it, it, it really me is. On a more I, I can't imagine level. a world where we didn't get that Rob Bottin work because it's not like we have a ton of movies from him. Uh, but yeah, that's a tough question. And another, you know, what might be, I'll pose a question to the movie God. What would be the two most difficult films to put in that question? I would say Raiders and Jaws. Ooh, the worst version of this I ever got asked was a friend of mine called into the show and his question was George Lucas or Jim Henson to which I and my my answer was I quit playing movie god for six months because um, I couldn't imagine losing either of them in terms of what they had done to my personal film I, you life. know it's weird that this movie god is so darn angry my, pose it the other way if you're movie god you get to create somebody just like Jim Henson or Steven Spielberg which person do you create that's you're all New Testamenty, and that's good. Well, you know us Jews, we love the New Testament. <laughs> it's, I, I would like that to be the new logo of the show, please. Um, <laughs> I like the you guys and you guys with your crazy sequel. I'll stick with the original. I, I don't. <laughs> Uh, so Andrew Carden asks, what is one 80s film that the vast majority of moviegoers seem to love, but you cannot stand? Likewise, what's a movie from the decade you adore that pretty much everyone else seems oh, to love? Oh, gosh. All right. Uh, you go first. Let, let, let's do the first half. You you answer the first half. Okay. The one that everybody loves that I cannot stand. Let me think. Oh, gosh. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll jump on this one real quick. All right. And we'll get to it much later when we get to the film. I was going to say Temple of Doom, but I, I have a reputation for hating that movie when, in fact, I, I like it. I just think it's a big problematic mess, especially coming from Spielberg. Uh, so I will say, oh, my gosh, I don't know. You got one? A movie that's beloved. And th see, that's the tricky part. All right, Drew, is Top Gun? Is Top Gun beloved? That's that's probably mine. I and and if you and I are in sync on that, then holy shit, is that episode going to be special? Um um, I would I would say Top Gun is a great example because I not only do I not get it, I didn't get it then. And I remember walking around most of that summer just mystified by people like, what are you talking really, about? Honestly, I don't know if I had the words to articulate it when it came out, but it really 100 percent plays like a 98 minute television commercial, like a recruitment. Like somebody said, let's make a recruitment ad for the Air Force or the Navy, I should say. Right. It's the Navy. Uh, but they fly everywhere, so I don't know why it's the Navy, but that's okay. Um, let's make like a 90-second ad for the Navy. And it was such an impressive ad. Somebody went, do you have a feature-length version of this? And they went, yes, we do. It's called Top Gun. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and it's 
really not for me. Um, yeah, and it's crazy. For years, I remember, um, especially because I worked in a lot of video stores, and I was there from when you know video made the jump from videotape to uh, laserdisc, and from laserdisc to DVD. And I've watched as you know they have gone through several different iterations of what the best looking and sounding something is. And pretty much from the moment it came out, Top Gun was one of those movies everybody used as a standard for uh, showing oh, Drew, off I a sound system. The term you're looking for is reference quality. And with reference quality for the audio, uh, people really enjoy the sound. Um, and it's just one of those. It's one of those movies that I, I it leaves me 100% cold. It didn't work for me then, and. Uh, when we do actually go back, I'm going to watch it with fresh eyes. I'm going to show it to the boys for the first time. I'm going to try again, and I'm going to try my very best. And if I don't love it, guys, please understand, this is hard earned. I don't think I think we're uh, I think we're um, overselling the the uh, tenacity or the passion of the Top Gun fans. I think. Oh no, no? we're not. No, we're not. Nope. There's people for whom it's still their favorite movie, and they watch it every year, and it's nonstop. Later today, you and I both go on Twitter at the same time and say. Top Gun is a piece of shit. Discuss. And let's see how many people <laughs> let's see how many people angrily get back to us. Well, I think Jeff Latulip will immediately ban. Oh, and I love Jeff, but he's wrong. <laughs> I think he's one of the guys who's gonna come at us real hard. And Jeff uh, <laughs> can lift me lift my balls up where they belong. How's that? <laughs> um and the other way around, uh movies that are pretty much universally disliked that I love, that's an easy one. And I, I have been fighting this fight since it came out, and I will continue to fight the fight. Uh, I don't just like, I love Ishtar, and I will explain why. Okay, I, I, you know what? I, I will be disbanding this podcast before we get to that episode. Nice. I will quit. I will walk. I will, I will go across the street and start um, all over 80s with someone else, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I can't I, I, wait. Ishtar is not Ishtar definitely has its moments and it's not as wretched as people th- say it is. I don't I agree with you on that, but it, on just a normal level of it's got some good beats and then it really runs out of steam. That's Ishtar for me. It's it's just it's got some good stuff and really runs out of steam and I can't fathom how it cost as much money that much money to make. Well, see, and that's that's the thing. I rem- and you're old enough that you still have the I can't believe it cost that much money bouncing around inside of you. By today's standards, it's a relatively modestly budgeted movie. And even if you take inflation into account, it's relatively modestly budgeted for a big studio star driven movie. But at the time, it was crazy. And that and I think that's 90 percent of that reaction is that movie was dead before it came out because the entertainment press, like with Waterworld, had decided no matter what. This fucking thing has to die. We are going to kill it. The internet has um, fostered, I want to say, uh, a, a lot of nastiness and unpleasantness as far as movie movie press and movie geeks are concerned. And, and that's a problem. But there are slight good sides to the internet. And slight good side to the internet is something like Ishtar and Waterworld. That stuff doesn't happen as much anymore because you have people on social media who will take both sides of any argument. So if the trades were reporting that, you know, Ishtar 2 is now $460 million budget, holy shit, it's what you would get half the people saying, oh, it's dead, I can't believe. And then the other half saying, who cares about the budget? If it's a decent movie, you know, you you get a lot more um, 
a wider variety of opinions on movies than, than you did back when there was uh, your local paper, premier magazine, and, uh, oh, this new magazine called Entertainment Weekly. Um, so, yeah, Ishtar is bad. Ishtar is, but it's not atrocious. And I'm glad that you like it because I don't want us to walk uh, in in uh, in line with everybody else. I'm, I'm stalling because I'm having trouble coming up with something that's not something we already did. Are there is there any horror gym that you feel like particularly protective of that you feel like nobody really gets this one? Hellraiser two. Oh, you know what? I I'm glad you said that because I do think that is underrated. And I remember that movie opened over the Christmas holiday, <laughs> and I remember this because I was a theater uh, projectionist and manager at the time, and it was playing in empty theaters for most of Christmas, as you would expect. It's Hellraiser two. It's <laughs> and. I remember walking in and out of that thing over and over and just marveling at how crazy it is. As a sequel, it is really ambitious at a time when it felt like the tendency for slasher and horror sequels was make them smaller, make them meaner, and try to figure out a way to like lighten it up a little bit for the general audience. Hellbound did not feel like it was like it was intentionally trying to widen its audience at all. If anything, it's crazier than the first. Yeah, one. it is. Uh, it, it, I, I love Hellraiser. I think it's one of the best horror films of the decade. And uh, the, I've seen Hellbound, its follow-up, uh, a few times recently. And boy, it really holds up. Uh, I, I have very little patience for the rest of this franchise. But uh, the first two, and and I, I, I'm willing to give part three another shot. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't yet, but uh, yeah, Hellraiser 2, as far as films that we've already covered... I, I am a passionate defender of Flash Gordon. Uh, when when I can generally tell when people just dismiss it out of hand without having seen it, because I'm sorry, if you've seen it, you, you must have a little bit of affection for the movie. It's adorable. Um, and Popeye, I, I get very protective of Popeye, as everybody knows. So uh, one of our readers, and I'm not going to say your last name because I will mangle it, but uh, hi, Michael. Um, wrote, hi guys, I'm in awe of your show and as someone who spent the 80s growing up in communist Poland and thus gobbled up most of American 80s movies only in the 1990s when they first became available here, I am learning a lot from you two. There's so much that I want to comment about, for, but for now, two quick questions. Will you cover selected TV movies as well? 1983 is coming up and it'd be fantastic to hear you two on, say, The Day After. Number two, why no references to Golden Razzies at all? Oscars are great, but since the 80s basically spawned the Razzies, I feel it'd be great to mention some of the more memorable nominees as they come along. Again, great, great, great job. All the best from Warsaw, not too far from where Decalogue was. Wow. First of all, first of all, name dropping Decalogue gets you bonus points. Well done, Michael. Second of all, I love your letter. I love the comment that I I would have never thought about the fact that you growing up in communist Poland, you would have had a radically different uh, interaction with your your media diet back then and that we are now basically giving you that guide to go back in and, and navigate that decade that's so cool man thank you so much for that i'm thrilled that we have uh listeners in in pittsburgh so when i hear that we have listeners in poland i just i smile that makes me very happy thank you uh, the TV movie thing we've actually talked about, and I think we're, what we're going to do is every now and then we will include something, not not in the main body of the show, but we may discuss something kind of uh, as a special preamble uh, that impacted pop culture in a way that rippled through movies, but that wasn't necessarily a movie. And I think Day After is a big one. You kind of need to deal with Day After, especially if you lived that era. I, I think if you didn't, you may not understand why it was so significant or important, but for anybody who was alive in 1983, that was a yeah, pretty big uh, If you were to say, do you guys want to start incorporating like the, the, the major TV movies? I'd say no, 
But if you say, do you think you should maybe include the day after as if it was just a tra traditional theatrical release? Uh, I would say, yeah, because it was that impactful. It was that uh, influential. It was that uh, socially everywhere eponymous it was just everywhere and um so yeah i'd be have i'd be fine with doing the day after i i would not want to start including and if there's a couple more down the road throughout the decade that we consider worthwhile then we'll include those as well but generally speaking theatrical releases keep us more than busy enough so uh and i think i think uh there's a chance you'll hear us talk about a few other big moments like mtv there were a couple of mtv moments you know what might not be a bad idea, it might, Drew, sorry, it might be a good idea if we want, uh, aside from Day After, which we can include in a regular episode, maybe ask our listeners to throw out some TV movies of the decade and make do that as a bonus episode. Uh, that'd be cool. I hope if we do that, I hope we include Special Bulletin, because that was a really good one. Yes, the Edward Zwick. That, I'm glad you said that. That one is fantastic, Special Bulletin. Um, and then if we widen it to include uh, stuff from anywhere in the 80s uh, on TV, uh, we should talk about Ghostwatch as well. Um, and then the second... And Thriller. Yep. Well, Thriller is a given. We will absolutely deal with Thriller and the impact of Thriller and sort of that moment. And I think we've got a special plan for how to do that one. It's another bonus episode we could do on, like, the movie's impact, uh, MTV's impact on the movies. Ooh, ooh. I mean, for example, for example, Drew, how many videos... Four songs that were on soundtracks, did you see, that incorporated, like, a nine-minute prologue, you know, a, a this is a music video for, like, Cindy Lauper's new video, but now there's, like, a four-minute epilogue, or prologue, on the video of her interacting with characters from the movie. Oh, my God, that and that became bigger and bigger over the course of the decade, too. Like, it, it really became such a weird symbiosis. Um, the second half of your question was, why no references to the Golden Razzies, and I... I'm sure Scott has an answer. I'll tell you mine. Um, I don't like the Oscars, so I certainly don't care about something that is created only to mock and tear movies down. I especially think the people that nominate the Golden Razzies are fairly wrong most of the time. I think they're I think they've taken shots at really great work over the years. And I think the only thing, the only time I've ever been interested in the Razzies at all was when I really hated the rise of the Oscar blog and for a little while considered for one year writing a blog in which I treated the Razzie race just as seriously. And I did a deadpan like an Andy Kaufman experiment where all year long I wrote about the race and I wrote about the different things that were going on and the politics of it and treated it as seriously as people treat the Oscars because I think the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah, um, I agree with everything Drew said, but I would also add this. Fuck the Razzies. All right. Um, if you and I are in the middle of a conversation and you were to say, oh, man, that movie really stunk. I was disappointed. I expected it to be so much better Then you know, that's two people discussing art. Uh, when you were dedicating an entire machinery of people to the derision and the disrespect uh, uh, of artists, of artists and filmmakers, even when they've made bad films, because I tell you what. Uh, nobody tries to make a bad film, at least not on this level. Nobody tries to make a bad film. And if something really stinks, I find that it's best to just discuss it, forget it, and focus on other better films because I, I don't enjoy wallowing in negativity. Um, and, and it's a shame because I'm actually pretty good at it. But uh, I don't like the Razzies. I don't like their fish-in-a-barrel uh, approach. I think that they... Um, don't have a lot of respect for actors and filmmakers and i can take some of my favorite podcasts in the world make fun of bad movies but 
there are there's respect and and I don't really get much respect from the Razzie group. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I love how did this get made or shows like that is you, you can hear them talking about the craft of film even when they're watching the craziest movie because they've all done it and they all understand exactly what it takes. And I'd love for example June Diane Rayfield will talk about a performance where she literally is not kidding around and she's not being sarcastic or snarky or anything else. She will watch an actor and go, you know what? I don't care about anything else that's happening. I like that choice. And I like what that person did. And I'm intrigued and watching movies like that with people who have worked on films and who know everything that goes into it, I think becomes really interesting because they're not just tearing down. They're really tearing apart so they can look at how something happened. Yes. They're not just saying, Oh, this is a horrible movie. Let's laugh at the screenwriter, laugh at the director. They are, you know, maybe laughing at the final product, but I don't get from how did this get made or uh, uh, Flophouse or We Hate Movies. I, I, ironically enough, those guys like movies. They've studied film. They like they know what they're doing. Um, so you know, if I, I'm not really just I'm just not a big fan of negativity. Those guys do it right, and they're seemingly inspired by Mystery Science Theater. If you're inspired by the Razzies, you would just be like, oh, what's the what's the movie everyone hates this year? Oh, from Justin to Kelly. That's easy. Let's just fish in a barrel. Blam, blam, blam. Uh, if you really were not that you need to, but if you were really going to dedicate your time and efforts to the most disappointing or the most wasteful uh, or movies, you would have to do a lot more research than just look at the novelty movies like from Justin to Kelly and load your shotgun. You know, like it takes a lot more work to actually write about film well and the Razzies irks me. Let's move on, Drew. I'm giving you a Razzie. No, I would never do that. Your summer of 82 coverage has been amazing. Uh, this is M. Dunlavy. But I'm curious if you two had a take on William Goldman's take on the summer of 82. His adventures in the screen trade, which I'm assuming rightly or wrongly you're familiar with, was being written that summer, and he spent some pages in it talking about how Hollywood had lost its way with the summer's offerings. Seeing as how that summer has influenced generations of future filmmakers, has a single big movie from that summer not been remade or sequelized at this point, how do you feel about his statements about the summer of 82? Was he right? I think he kind of was, but maybe not in the way he thought. Was time passing him by? It's interesting that in his next book, he refers to this period of his career as his time in the wilderness. Anyway, not a succinct question, but I'm curious if you have comments on this. Um, I think part of the reason that Goldman was having the reaction he was, and by the way, if you have not read Adventures in the Screen Trade, it is one of the best books about how studio movies got made in the 70s. And that's really the value of it, because there were very few writers who were better at navigating that system than Goldman. He pitched big movie after movie. Books of his were bought and adapted, and he did most of the adaptations. He worked with almost every major director or major movie star. And in a lot of cases, he was everybody's favorite writer because he came in and the work that he did was so specific to, to that process. He understood how to make a movie star happy. He understood how to make directors happy. So moving into the 80s, it was a radically different kind of film. New kinds of filmmakers were sort of popping up. And I think his specialty, which was writing for movie stars and writing for certain kinds of filmmakers, just didn't fit in that system the same way. So I think a lot of his book is you're watching an honest reaction from somebody who's seeing the industry change around him and realizing, oh, shit, I'm the old man now. And that's terrifying. Yeah, I, I love William Goldman. I love that book. He's a fantastic writer. Um, and and it, it must have been fascinating for a guy who was partially old guard, but still young enough in the game to see 
things turn from like what studios wanted in 1977 versus what studios wanted in 1983. A guy like William Goldman must have just looked at it like night and day, you know, just just completely. Uh, now, this is a guy that throughout the 70s, he wrote what uh, uh, Stepford Wives, Marathon Man, All the President's Men, uh, Bridge Too Far, right? Um, and, and then throughout the 80s, uh, uh, Heat, Princess Bride. And misery in ninety, yeah, yeah. And Princess Bride was, uh, you know, a book of his that somebody really wrangled onto the screen, and, and for years and years and years nurtured, and it took a long time to get there. Um, and oddly, feels perfect for the eighties, where I don't think the seventies version of Princess Bride would have worked. Uh, but the the great thing about William Goldman to remember is, as great as he is, and you know, nobody knows anything and all that stuff. William Goldman still has his name on some pretty shitty movies. <laughs> I mean, William Goldman wrote the book and the screenplay for Magic. Yeah, you live you live long enough, and you work long enough in this town, and uh, William Goldman wrote Hearts in Atlantis and Dreamcatcher. Yeah, you you will make some terrifically terrible movies. And The General's Daughter. All right, Oof. you know. So it's like nobody's Im- nobody's immune to this machine. Nobody's immune. You know, even one of the best screenwriters of all time. Uh, and it new. must have been it must have been a weird feeling if you were a 70s filmmaker to watch what was happening in the early 80s and and watch what was starting to kick in and what was becoming interesting and and what audiences were starting to react to. Um, you know, I know for a lot of this almost always happens generationally, but I know for a lot of comedy uh, actors and writers and directors, it must have been baffling. And one of the reasons I love Carl Reiner is you're talking about a guy who was doing sitcoms in the 50s and who helped establish what a sitcom even was, who could adapt and bend enough that he could make not only the Steve Martin films he made in the 80s, but Summer School, which is a, a limber young man's movie from a dude who at that point was no one's definition of a young man. Um so it's interesting. Some guys have the ability to, I think, just constantly say, okay, this is what comedy is now. This is what film is now. This is what, and they constantly change. And other guys, I think they are what they are and they bristle when the system changes. I think a guy like William Goldman, to just wrap up this one question, I think a guy like William Goldman probably lamented the arrival of the 80s. I think a lot of screenwriters probably did because in the 70s, he was a lot busier and he was a lot, he wrote a lot of character based stuff. Uh, and in the 80s, it was more action set based stuff and more, you know, much larger, less character, uh, more action, less character. And, and a guy like him is like, oh, this is what you want now. Everybody wants to make Star Wars. Everybody wants to make Raiders. And in the 70s, you know, you had probably a lot more freedom to you know, write something a little bit weird or a little bit quiet. Um, whereas in the 80s, those opportunities pretty much started to dry up. OK, so there's a quick question here. And. I think it's meant in a joking tone, but I've been asked this privately enough times that I wanted to address it here on the show. Uh, and the question is, does Weinberg still have the knife he stuck in Scott Swan's back to take over as Drew's podcast partner? I'm joking, probably. And the answer to that is, this I, this podcast was Scott's idea as much as mine. Scott and I had this idea together. We talked about this for a long time before we came up with a format. And it came out of conversations that we had had uh, at film festivals and on the phone and things like that. The, the process that this podcast was, A, first off, I love Scott Swan. I would not replace him in any way. He's a great writer. Secondly, uh, lots of podcasters go on and have second shows and third and fourth and fifth shows. If uh, if Paul Shear ever does a podcast after How Did This Get Made, I don't think June or Jason will be mad at him. Um 
Thirdly, the, the, the way this show was built was I threw an idea at Drew. I wanted us to do a podcast together because I thought that edited properly. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, our, our conversations could maybe make for good movie podcast episodes. And I must have thrown... Drew, how about a podcast idea about underrated horror movies? Well, that's pretty good, but horror is done, man. Horror is really, there's a a lot of horror. All right, Drew, two weeks later. uh, Drew, how about a podcast about soundtracks and scores? Not bad. It's a little vague. Maybe maybe we want to make it a little tighter, something a little more specific. Got it. And this must have happened, what, seven or eight times where you you said, throw me any ideas. And then I this was literally number five or six. And I went... 80s. And I thought the f- the funniest version of this and your original pitch was that we would do it like it was actually 1982 or 1980, whatever we were reviewing. Oh, yes. And, yes. That's and as right. if these that's were right. brand new movies. <laughs> and so there was going to be a character level almost on top of it. And as soon as we started looking at the amount of work it was, it was like, OK, I don't think I'm good enough to do that. I think I just need to actually review the movies because right. yeah. that comedy shtick. Maybe we'll do that for one episode as a joke. <laughs> but that, that to me would have been fun where it had been like, hey, it's gotten Drew, March 3rd, 1984. And we just got back from Red Dawn. Wow. Red Dawn blew my mind. Take that dirty mother Russia. Well, you know, those Russians causing problems right now. Yeah, it's there would have been a whole different vibe to the show. And I, I really I appreciate that what we can do by doing it sincerely in the way we're doing it is offer perspective and talk about a, a wide variety of things, including what it felt like then. And keep that in mind when you're collaborating with somebody is that when you throw a bunch of ideas at somebody and they say, no, that's not necessarily the the the. um the message to stop trying the message is to try harder. And when Drew came back and said, "Ah, that one's not bad. And I was just like, Oh, which one's he going to like, you know, eventually we're going to have to decide on something. And when we hit on this one, it was like a bell hit and drew it. That's the one that's it. We're, this is the one we're doing. And I went, yeah. And he goes like, yeah, but, but do it instead of us being in the eighties, we do it contemporaneously. and And we built it from there. That's literally, it was just me throwing out ideas and then him making, idea number seven better and i will say this um as far as scott swan he is scott seems very happy doing the stuff he's doing right now which is on a really radically different track and i just saw him recently and um you know i would have him as a guest on this anytime he wanted to because hell half of the 80s uh scott was my constant movie buddy so it would certainly be a welcome guest spot if he ever showed up. And, of course, everybody knows that you could check out Scott Swan's work in the episodes of Masters of Horror that he co-wrote with Drew. Those would be uh, Pro-Life and, um, oh, my God, uh, Cigarette Birds. Sure would. <laughs> Forgot the title for a second. And that one Fear Itself that you wrote. What was it called? How to Touch Yourself? Skin and Bones. With Skin the, My Boner. With the right, great, great Doug Jones playing our monster. Oh, I love Doug Jones. Doug Jones. All right. So Jeff Block asks, how has the pace and task of making the podcast panned out so far? Has it proven more or less daunting than anticipated? Are the logistics and schedules not too difficult? We as listeners like to think it's a walk in the park, but is it? Uh, <laughs> I thought that I thought that would get that response out of Scott. It is not a walk in the park, oddly. I'm amazed at how much time is spent just juggling how much I have to watch. And and we really, I, I that's the thing that I want to emphasize. We try to watch everything. And that means a lot of legwork to track some of these movies down in whatever format they're available. And I'm finding like gray market places to buy DVDs of stuff that hasn't been ever legally released. And, you know, it's crazy. It, if anything, it has taught me 
how many films are not in general easy release at this point. And it, it is more than you think. And then it's weird ones that are available and bigger ones that aren't. And it, there's no rhyme or reason. It's rights packages and who funded this and how this was divvied up in a film catalog somewhere. And there's stuff that may never come back out. Yeah, but Drew, why don't you talk real quick? What If every single movie was readily available to you at the push of a button, there'd still be a lot of work. Well, it's, it's still about three hours of movie because you figure we make notes and we will watch something. And a lot of times I'll watch something. Um, you know, I've got interruptions going on. I've got calls. I've got people coming in and out. So it'll, I've got children's. Um, it's uh, It takes a lot of time to schedule all these. And in months where we have 19, 20, 25 movies, there's months coming up. Dude, there's there's a couple of months in 83 where there are 33, 37 movies. Those are insane workloads because that's three hours per movie, roughly. And you've got, for example, I, I've, I've been watching films of August 82 this month. And then I've been jumping ahead and grabbing a few films from January of 83 just to, to get them out of the way so that when we get there, I've already done half of those. Uh, now, this is not hard work like medical school is hard work, but it is kind of a lot of work um and it, it i love it I'm, I'm elated that people like it and 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 you know want want more episodes and that predicates more work but just scheduling me bobby and drew on the same phone call can sometimes be uh sometimes be yeah. hard and yet. so yeah um, it, there's a million moving pieces even with only three of us involved and um you know one of the other questions here somebody didn't really have a question they just said i'd really like more of your uh, patron interviews and I'm 100% down with that. We've got some good ones coming. We've got guests who are not filmmakers. From Can you tell them? Tell well, them, I, tell them well, what you got. We've got Bill Hader coming who's going to talk about uh, the movies that he loves from the 80s that people don't necessarily know or recognize. And I'm excited about that one. I'm just as excited that Bill Roseman, a friend of mine who I saw these movies with in 80 to 85, uh, who is now one of Marvel's main uh, licensing coordinators, uh, he's going to come on the show and he's going to talk about that time, you know, that era where we, we were friends and we went to movies together. Uh, we've got one of the writers of Saw who's going to come on soon. We've got uh, it, it's fun because people are excited by the format. I'm also working on patron interviews with guys like Joe Dante, who will do the longer career arc thing where we talk about all of his movies from the 80s. There's plenty more of all that stuff coming. And I think. Yeah, we originally thought that just our 80s interviews would be filmmakers and actors of the 80s. But then Joe Lynch came along and obliterated that with his contemporaneous filmmaker interviews in which he discusses underrated films of the 80s. So like Drew said, we'll be doing that with Lee 1L sometime soon. We're still trying to tie down the awesome Ellen Barkin, uh, not literally tie her down. Uh, we are trying to tie down uh, uh, Xander Berkeley and Barbara Crampton. Xander Berkeley, we're actually literally going to tie down, so. Yes, yeah, because we believe that he could get himself out of it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you have any suggestions for uh, bonus episode topics like this one, mailbag, or commentaries, interviews, you know, anything, anything, uh, let us know because we're, some weeks we have we're totally fine on bonus episodes, and some weeks we're like, oh, what should we do next week? What should we do? So if you have any ideas, we're open. Um, and and we do we we missed last week, but uh, we're make, recording this episode to make up for a bonus episode that we missed. Our goal is to have a bonus episode one per week. This one's late, but it still counts. <laughs> uh, Peter Mars asks, by your reckoning, what is the best special effects shot in a major studio release during the eighties? 
And what would you deem the worst? I think the worst for me, uh, the Ebersisk from uh, uh, Willow. That thing is a nightmare of composit- compositing. It is a not particularly great example of stop motion. And there is not a second that I believe it is actually occupying anything like the same space as any character in that movie. On top of which, really, the Ebersisk. It's 30 years and I'm not over that one. Really? Beyond all that, it's also just kind of a rotten design for a dragon. It is. Oh, it's a terrible design. It's a te- It's everything. Think of the shot where it comes up behind uh, Val Kilmer and it's clearly blue screened in and it doesn't look right. And the, it does, certainly doesn't look like it's actually behind him and his composite is off. Um, that might be, considering it's ILM and a George Lucas movie, that might be one of the most shocking effects I've ever seen. I, gosh, I may, I guess I'm just stuck where I was stuck 10 minutes ago, but for best special effect of the 80s, I don't know how you could touch either American Werewolf in London or The Thing. I mean, if you're not into horror, I could see, uh, oh, you have a bias towards horror, fine. I, I mean, as far as practical makeup effects are concerned, those two are you know, the pinnacles uh, of the decade for me. Um, and, and as far as bad effects, gosh, I, I honestly, I, I, man, I, 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 I have to beg off on this one. I don't, I, try, I generally don't remember uh, the stuff. Oh, I got one. The octopus from the Goonies was so terrible. They cut it from the movie. I, I think for best special effects shot in a major studio release, uh, I'm going to say the entirety of Roger Rabbit. Uh, there are there was no other movie that decade where I sat jaw on the floor the entire time, knowing that what I was looking at was impossible and literally baffled by most of what I saw. Like, that can't happen. No, that didn't happen. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a great example of uh, of special effects. Be that, like, um, sorry, uh, it's like an example of revolutionary special effects that somehow managed to feel old fashioned and quaint and lived in, you know, uh, there is some brilliant effects work in in Roger Rabbit. And it's not just the novelty of seeing cartoons interacting with humans. That's part of it, but the actual technical merits of that film are astonishing. Well, that was Zemeckis in general. There was a, a stretch there where he seemed determined to every time out do at least one or two things where he went, well, that's not possible. I, I mean, I know how effects are done and you just did something that you can't. Do. Oh, Ebersisk. I just got that. Yeah. You know, there's also a general kale in that movie. Uh, somebody was working some shit out. Yeah. <laughs> Who wrote that? Was that Ben Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel? Bob Dolman, uh, one of the SCTV writers. But that was pure George Lucas straight from the tap. Yeah. And I, I will get to this when we get to Willow. But uh, re- now that you look at uh, Willow retroactively, you look at it from, from with modern eyeballs. And I want the movie should be called Lord of the Rings will never get made. So we're going to make this. <laughs> I think I, I think I may have used that joke before, but man, it's crazy how much plagiarism there is in Willow. Um, this guy, it's not a direct 80s question, but since he's a, a mailbag patron and contributed several other questions, we'll answer this one. Um, Peter Mars also asks, Drew, in the lead up to Blade Runner 2049, when the trailer came out, you stated you knew some story beats before release. Now that it's out, what did you know? Had you seen an early script or was this just what you heard through the grapevine? Um, the thing that, because I, I remember what I said, I, I tweeted, uh, I'm really curious to see what people think of the central hook in Blade Runner, 
once it comes out because it's either going to be love or hate. It's it's a really big choice. And the choice I was talking about was that replicants can have children now, that they have made the jump to organically creating life. Um, and what kind of blew my mind with the release was nary a peep. Nobody seemed to really uh, make any comment one way or another about it. And to me, that's a giant idea that radically changes the first film. Uh, and it's something I really love the way they executed it. But boy, when you just hear that as an out of context idea, the replicants can have children now. That's a big choice. And it definitely means that they're doing something different this time. I'm, I'm surprised by how people reacted. No films were ever released post-December 1989, so therefore I cannot comment on the <laughs> quality of this alleged Blade Runner sequel that doesn't exist because I, I don't exist past 1989. Uh-huh. Yep. Sorry. Are, are there any writers, filmmakers you've either discovered or were previously aware of that got their start in the 80s but didn't really seem to make it out of the 80s and you wish there was more for them to offer? For example, Steve Jarnett is somebody I found... Uh, someone I found offered up something unique and interesting with Miracle Mile, but he never did anything theatrical after that. This is Adam Charles. It's weird that the first name, when as you were reading the question, that the first name that popped into my head was Phil Juana. Uh, very fair choice. And uh, uh, and uh, to those who are 80s junkies, he got his directorial debut. Uh, um, he made a film called Three O'Clock High, and then he directed U2 Rattlin' Hum. Uh, and, uh, over the course of his career, he did state of grace. He did final analysis, uh, some other not very good films, but I think visually speaking, he's a fascinating filmmaker and you could see it in three o'clock high and state of grace where he, he really had an interesting way of moving his camera. Um, and he did mainly music videos before and after his, his, uh, films. And so, yeah, he's a, he's a filmmaker that I wish had maybe gotten some better screenplays because visually I think Phil, Phil Juano is a fascinating filmmaker. Uh, the one for me that I, I just, I'll never understand is Paul Brickman. Um, I think risky business is phenomenal. And I think men don't leave, which was February of 1990, definitely an eighties film in, in vibe and tone. Uh, also phenomenal. I think they are great movies and he's never made a feature since. Um, and I don't, I don't get it. Cause that was a guy who seemed to me monstrously talented. Could it just be, I mean, like you get a great job, like say you get a great job offer at, 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 at Apple, you know, pays great, great benefits and that and you get there and you, you're like, wow, this is great. And then two years later, you realize this job is not what I wanted, man. It pays well. And, and, you know, it was a good gig, but this is not the job I wanted and I'm out. And I think that sometimes happens with directors. Yeah. And he was, I, for a young filmmaker, he was already in his 30s when he directed Risky Business. Um, and he's written a couple of things. He made a short back in 2012. But it just, it, he never did anything else, really. And it, it, to me, is crushing when you see somebody who's got such, um, such an ability to take what should have been a junky little genre movie like Risky Business and turn it into something that had this style and this voice that was so unique. Um, I, I will always wonder what we could have gotten out of him. And we've talked about this. Colin Higgins was a great example of that as well. Yep. Nine to five. In just died too soon. Yeah. Uh, a, a director who did go on to some success, but I wish she had done a little bit better uh, with, with the quality. I wish she had been given better materials. Amy Heckerling, who uh, directed a phenomenal film called Fast Times Ridgemont High for her debut. And then she did Johnny Dangerously, European Vacation, Look Who's Talking, uh, before she righted the ship in 95 with Clueless. But, um, I, I, you know, in, in a perfect world, you know, she would have been doing more than just maybe junky horror sequels. Uh, 
But, you know, she also directed two of the biggest hits of the 80s. So maybe, uh, you know, good for her. Uh, and then uh, we're going to wrap it up with this last question from Gabriel Neeb. What is the source for release dates? Is it the day a film opens in L.A. and New York, old newspaper ads, IMDb, Wikipedia, and then when you come across films released elsewhere in 89 but not in the U.S., will they still be covered? This is a question with like 40 different answers because there are countless. I mean, you would think, oh, IMDb, right. But oh, IMDb, 75% of the time is reliable. 25% of the time, it's completely fiction. And when it's really wrong, it's really wrong. And uh, and that has certainly happened. Release dates tend to be problematic, um, especially when you get back to 80, 81, 82. Uh, I find that after that, it starts to get a little better. And um, I, part of what happened was people started tracking uh, weekend releases, and they started doing the top 10 charts, and they started being very aggressive about it once it hit like Entertainment Tonight and once it got more mainstream. For a long time, the trades were the only places you could read weekend grosses because no one cared. It became a spectator sport in the 80s, and as a result, I think there are better and better records about what came out every weekend, weekend to weekend. Um, but for a lot of this stuff, we are using as many as seven, eight, nine primary sources. Drew, Drew realized that most online resources were built working from the same pot. Uh, so Drew went out and got, uh, purchased a series of hard book, hard copies of, uh, these film encyclopedias that documented the release dates for every film. And even then, even then when comparing it against Drew's quote unquote Bibles, there are still, uh, competing, uh, release dates from the AFI site, uh, or from IMDb. Well, and from... part of the problem with the John Willis Screen World books at, is that they are, although they were contemporary and they were published the year after, so like the 83 book covers 82, um, you're dealing with a guy who is talking about L.A. releases. So there are films he'll include that were regional or drive-in releases that had been around for like three or four years that finally showed up in L.A. And in some of those cases, I don't actually know how to consider, so, because... Some of these movies would play one theater, two theaters, and they would travel around the country and then finally end up in New York or L.A. after a while. And those are considered by Variety or the New York Times or some of the more authoritative sources their release dates because that's when it played a major city. But it's a film that had been kicking around for three years. Right. And uh, generally speaking, if something uh, we go with the first public american release date not a festival uh if it played it right uh like porky's opened in canada and then a year later it opened here uh but it, i mean if it opened in bismarck on july 3rd and then new york city on july uh, august we'd probably go with july right i mean even though it's only bismarck but it's still a public yeah, a good example was we recently did savannah smiles and we covered it because of the salt lake city release it later got picked up by wait whoa 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 whoa! i thought it was called savannah's miles like she's she's driven she's been kidnapped many miles you are correct um how did i not break that joke out on the episode <laughs> I, um and because it was a regional release first and then got picked up by Fox because it did so well, I thought it was fitting that we covered the Salt Lake City release. For most people, it was a December release, but technically it came out earlier in the year. So, yeah, there's no exact science, but Drew and I, rest assured, are, uh, I hate to use the word, but as anal as we can possibly be about release dates, if you were to uh, hack into our Gmail, which you shouldn't, 
But if you were, you would see emails like, hey, uh, does home sweet home count as July 81 or August 81? And, you know, like we care, like we're that nerdy. About I have, I have <laughs> never spent more time discussing in Seminoid than I'm sure I will for this this podcast. So. Right. It's because it's a record. I mean, like it's not we're not you know, we're not we're not shooting to be like the Library of Congress here. But if we're going to do a show with this format, we want to be as accurate as humanly possible, you know, because a you deserve the factual information and B that's just how movie geeks are. <laughs> I am um, absolutely true. It is a, a crazy process. And like I said, um, you know, a lot of these films, even after you nail down release date, um, good luck then finding the actual movie. So, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it. We've got a lot more questions, so this will definitely, we'll be able to do another mailbag in a couple of weeks. Um, please keep the questions coming in. We're always happy to have more and, uh, we will rotate through all of them at some point. Um, thank you guys as always for contributing, for being ongoing patrons of the podcast. Uh, you are also tireless in the way you talk about it and you, you, uh, share the word about it, and that means so much to us. That is how new listeners uh, uh, join the podcast. And one of the things that's really exciting that I told Scott about the other day is looking at the numbers for how many people are downloading episodes and listening to episodes. We started at a certain level, and we've, I don't know, we've gone up by a factor of three or four at this point. Like we are growing, and it's really starting to work. Right. We had we had our first episode. We had ten listeners. And now we have about 55. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> no, our numbers have, have really gone up. I, I honestly, to swear to God, I don't look at numbers. I don't care about stats. Uh, the only feedback that I get from people are from Drew, Bobby, and people who hit us up on Twitter. Uh, I don't, you know, for all I know, eight people are downloading it and eight people are enjoying it. The thing <laughs> that I love, though, is it looks like as you guys join, you go back and you listen to everything because the numbers are pretty consistent across the board now. So clearly... It's not just you join and then each episode gets bigger. It's that you join and then all the episodes get listened That's to. That's the beauty. I mean, uh, Drew, how I you you you're listening to what what was the podcast you just got into? My uh, me and my brother's brother. Uh, my brother, my brother, and me. All right, I keep forgetting the title, but I'm you, he's recommended this podcast to me like three times, and. The beauty, the joy, the bliss of getting into a podcast that you're discovering one that you like is looking at the back catalog and seeing 160 episodes. That is just a wonderful feeling. And if you uh, if somebody has downloaded our uh, June 1982 episode and looks back and sees, you know, 30 some episodes, that's great. That makes me very happy. So, guys, thank you, as always. Um, and uh, we will have more bonus episodes. We've got a lot of great stuff lined up in the next month. The holidays are going to be really fun. Yeah. Uh, oh, and my apologies for the delay on this bonus episode. I was traveling from Chicago to Austin back to Philly, and I was both exhausted and sick. So we had to delay this episode a few days, and that's my fault, and I apologize. Thank you for your patience. No worries. Um, guys, thank you so much, and uh, now we've got to go record August 82, so let's get out of here.